The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Genesis 3, uh, we're starting there this morning. Um, if you want to get a bit of a head start, you can also flip to Luke chapter 2, because uh, we're going to be passing through Luke chapter 2 as well. And if you really want to get, uh, get ahead, you can um, put your finger in uh, Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to kind of finish there today. Um, we are starting our Advent preaching series today, and the approach that we're taking this morning and, and for the next four weeks is uh, rather than going through the, the kind of the classic birth narratives and the stories of uh, uh, the wise men and the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and all that, which we will we'll dabble in, we'll get to that bit by bit. And that's awesome. I'm, I'm not at all discrediting that. Um, but we're going to instead wind the clock backwards and work our way through the Old Testament, taking a look at the various hints and prophecies that are found throughout the Old Testament to see that the story of God coming to earth as the person of Jesus Christ was not out of the blue. It wasn't an isolated event that took place in a vacuum, but rather it was the long-awaited fulfillment of multiple promises from God over thousands of years. We can sometimes fall into the trap of, of disconnecting the New Testament from the Old Testament and, and thinking that they ought to be kept apart, almost as if the New Testament was God's plan 2.0, that it kind of he reset everything then. For instance, I've come across and I've met people who have, I used to think this as well, there's an incorrect way of thinking about God that we would never necessarily articulate it this way, but it's this idea that the God of the Old Testament was this grumpy old kind of angry man who just like didn't like people, had low patience, high standards, and liked to smite people. And then the God of the New Testament was Jesus, and he came along, and, and he was God's son, and he was a bit nicer than God, and got everybody off the hook and, and really softened the old guy a little bit, and then that's kind of the story of the Bible. That's not true at all. That's not at all what the Bible teaches us. But actually, it teaches us that the God of the Old Testament, the baby that we, the baby Jesus in the manger that we look at and that we think about and that we sing about, is actually the God of the Old Testament come to come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the second. Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity, fully God and fully man. And unfortunately, the incarnation, the the story of of Jesus coming to earth, Jesus being born, is often the story that disconnects the testaments that keeps them separate from one another. And so the purpose of the series is to say, no, 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 that's not true. This is actually the, the result, the fulfillment of a long time of waiting. John tells us that the word, which is Jesus, was both with God and also was God. That this, this baby who we celebrate was actually God in the flesh. And that's astonishing, right? Like, I could just pray and we could be done there just by simply saying that. God in the flesh, God incarnate, God coming to earth. The Old Testament is full of hints that this was going to happen. It was full of these hints that God was sending his people to save them. And this, this person was regarded as the Messiah or the Christ, the king who would come to establish his kingdom and to rule over his kingdom and to save his people from their sins. 
And when Jesus came, he didn't come just as a messenger, he came as the message. He didn't just come as a very important person, he came actually, he actually was God. And that's what the series is all about, working our way through these hints and through these prophecies to get a bit of a clearer picture about what the birth of Jesus is all about. So... Uh, the, the passage we're looking at today is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Addy read it out a few moments ago. Not a classic Christmas verse. I'll, I'll, pay, I'll give you that. Um, but today the sermon is called Jesus the Snake Crusher. That's what today's sermon is about today. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, we, we ask this morning that as your word tells us, uh, we ask that you would deal generously with us. You would be abundant and uh, lavish, Lord, with your wisdom towards us. Be generous to us, Lord, so that we might have life. And as we have life, that we would fully obey your word and keep your word. Be generous this morning, Holy Spirit, in the way you teach us. Give us more than we can handle. Make it a lot to debrief today, Lord, on the way home. Lord, where we have, have sinned and, and uh, hidden that from you, where we have been like Adam and Eve and uh, hiding, trying to cover ourselves up, trying to reject you, Lord. Would you reveal to us that you're the one who, you're the only one who can cover our shame. You're the only one who can fully deal with our sin. And so would you, Holy Spirit, make us fully willing and ready to be, to be made new again and to, to be taught by your word. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. A couple of years ago, uh, we got some new neighbors. Really, really lovely people. Uh, we went at their place for dinner last night. And um, they're from New Zealand. And, and that meant that they were a little bit unsure about what to do with the whole snake thing. Like, they knew that Australia, they'd heard it from, from us Aussies that, you know, that they've got to be worried about snakes. And they, they asked us maybe just within the first week of moving here, hey, what's the deal with snakes? Do we need to be, how serious do we need to take this? Do we need to be, care- how, ser- how careful should we be about this? And I assured them, you know, it's, you know, us Aussies, we really like to beat that up a lot. Like, it's actually not that serious. I mean, I, I'm speaking of someone who's lived in suburbia my entire life. Like, there's some people here from the country and they're like, no, no, you, you sh- need to give them better advice than that, probably that's true, but I've always lived in like suburbs and streets with gutters and things, like I've just, it's never been a huge issue, so I was like, listen, where we lived and where they were moved to, it wasn't huge drama, we had never seen a snake in the two years that we had lived there before, so we said, listen, you don't need to worry about it, it's just a bit of a hype, don't, don't stress about it too much, and they were very relieved that we were very kind of calm and cool and collected with all that. Two days later... <laughs> I was leaving the house and went to the garage and there was a red-bellied black snake in our garage. Just a little baby one, but um, babies mean mums and dads as well. Uh, they're around and uh, I texted a buddy of mine and he was like, yeah, you don't want to go near those ones. Those, those ones are the dark side of the force. And um, so we had to go to these neighbours and say, hey, we know what we said, 
but uh, we did just see a red belly black snake in that garage. And they were like, oh, like it's, it's just a once-off event. It's just like, it's, it's, it, you know, it's a real rare thing. And we let it go way over in the bushes, so it's all good. And then two days later, um, I, I saw a big eastern brown snake stunning itself in a, in a car park near our place. And we had to go back and say, hey, listen. Um, <laughs> We know that we said there's no snakes here, but we've just seen a huge eastern brown, and you need to be careful, and um, yeah. But there is something about snakes that puts a lot of people off. Like, some people do love snakes, and that's fair enough, um, they're, they're, but I think we can all acknowledge that they're a bit of an acquired taste. Like, like, if you are the kind of person who loves snakes and loves handling snakes, you, you would also know that you're one in a million. Like, you're, you're not the typical kind of person. I, myself, don't mind snakes as long as I know where they are. Like, if, if someone was to put me in a room and say, and said, there's a snake in here somewhere, I wouldn't be okay with that. That would not be okay, but if I could see the snake, I'm a whole lot better. Um, don't get me started on eels. Eels are a different kettle of fish. That's uh, like snakes have like two axes and eels have a third axis, if you know what I mean. Like if a snake comes towards you, it can go left, right, or forwards and backwards, but an eel can go up and down. Like if you're snorkeling and there's an eel, it can get eye level with it. It just freaks me out. <laughs> but we're generally wary of snakes. Like if someone sees a snake, the right thing to do is do something about it, tell somebody about it. Uh, and so when we read a passage like Genesis 3, 14 to 15, and we read about hostility between mankind and the snake, we kind of get it. Like, yeah, that, that makes sense. So let's read it again. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The situation is this. God created the Garden of Eden and put Adam and Eve in it, inviting them to enjoy every bit of it, to work it and to cultivate it and to rule over it so that it would flourish. There was no sin, everything existed in perfect harmony, and the best thing was that God was there. He would come to them in the cool of the evening breeze, in the time of the evening breeze, and they had a, had a relationship with love himself. But Satan, the great enemy and, the, and the, the fallen angel and the great enemy of God, he hated God. He hated what God had created, and he hated uh, his creation. He wanted to destroy creation. He wanted to annihilate God's glory and drive a wedge between God and mankind. So he entered the garden in the form of a snake and tempted Eve to do the one thing that God had commanded them not to do, to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking to yourself, Really, guys? Like talking snakes? Are we, are we really still there? You don't really believe that, do you? Actually, yes, we do. And if you think that's crazy, you should hear what else we believe. We believe that the God of the universe would lay his life down for us. A talking snake's got nothing on that. A talking snake is a walk in the park compared to that unbelievable truth that God a holy, righteous God would love sinners like us. That shouldn't bend your brain a lot more. 
So Eve, receiving this new so-called wisdom and rejecting God's goodness, disobeyed God. She, she saw and believed that the fruit of the tree was better than what, she, than what God could give her and, and she thought it would make it equal with God. So she took it and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. It's a catastrophic event with devastating outcomes. Sin had entered God's perfect world. Adam and Eve knew they had sinned. And so they tried to cover their shame, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the time of the evening breeze. And so they tried to hide from God. God confronted Adam about it. He confronted the man, <clears throat> and he blamed his wife Eve. <clears throat> Eve blamed the snake. And that's why in verse 14 we have the God of the universe talking to the snake. He's pronouncing his judgment upon the snake. And then he's going to do the same thing to Eve in verse 16 and then to the man in verses 17 to 19. We're not going to get there today. We're just focusing on this bit with the snake. What we need to comprehend here is that sin is serious. Mega serious. As serious as it gets. God had warned them of the consequences of eating the fruit. They would die. And their actions welcomed death into creation. They would one day taste the sting of death and suffer its victory against them. Their death wasn't instantaneous, but it was nevertheless inevitable. Sin was now in the world, and its counterpart, death, had come with it. What was once beautiful and harmonious had become fractured and the world would not be the same again. And Adam and Eve, they could do nothing to get rid of the sin. It was on them and they couldn't get it off them. Sin had entered through Adam and spread to all mankind and all of mankind came under the horrible curse of sin because all mankind has sinned. Sin makes death Inevitable for all of mankind. And like Adam and Eve, there is nothing that we can do to rid ourselves of it. We cannot outperform sin. We cannot uh, perform or work in such a way that it, it eradicates our sin ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves from it. We cannot rid ourselves of it. We are powerless to do anything about it. What Adam and Eve needed is what all of mankind needs. Salvation. We need to be saved from our sins. And that there is the context of the curse that is spoken to the snake. Mankind needs to be saved from their sins. We need to be saved from our sins. That's the context. But as we look at what God says to the snake, we're going to find that what he says here is not altogether hopeless. In fact, it's, these verses hold a lot of hope within them. It's not the fluffy kind of hope that we're used to, like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, where we're uncertain about the future. It's the robust, biblical, bulletproof hope of something that we know is going to come to pass, the certainty of our future. So this passage, verse 15 in particular, is what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first utterance of the good news. It's the first prophecy, the first hint that God has an answer to sin. God is going to save his people from their sins. And we'll get into it in just a sec, but one of the things that struck me about reading this is just how rapid God's response was to sin. 
No sooner had Adam's sin been discovered than God's first words to the snake, even within the curse upon the snake, are full of hope. I'm going to do something about this. God immediately announced, immediately announced his plans to unwind sin's catastrophe. So our focus this morning is going to be on verse 15, but we need to walk through verse 14 first. Verse 14 is kind of like a ramp to get us up to verse 15. So let's take a quick look at that. Speaking to the snake, God says, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Satan had used uh, the snake to smuggle sin into God's world. And so the snake more than any other animal, whether wild or domesticated, would forever become the symbol of God's reminder of God's uh, symbol, of the rem- reminder of God's curse upon sin. It's kind of like when a simple object or an item takes on new significance because a cherished memory is attached to it. Like a screwdriver is no longer just a screwdriver when it's been handed down from father to son. A piece of jewelry contains deeper meaning when it's, when it's gifted from a lover. This seems to be the case for the curse on the snake. Some speculate that what this means is that the snake originally had legs or originally had some kind of upright posture, and the curse meant that it went through, underwent some kind of uh, physical transformation into a new existence. That might be the case. I personally don't take that view. It seems to be here that the snake is not so much taking on a new type of existence, but its existence is taking on a new significance. The fact that it moves on its belly and is forced to eat eat dust all the days of its life will be symbolic of Satan's perpetual failure and eventual demise. You see, in the Bible, to to eat dust... Is symbolic of someone who is experiencing perpetual frustration and humiliation and never gains victory. In King Solomon's prayer for the king in Psalm 72, he says, May the king's enemies lick the dust. In Micah 7, the prophet is prophesying against God's enemies who taunted his people, saying of the nations, They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. We have a similar expression, immortalized in Queen's song, Another One Bites the Dust. Another one has fronted up to me, another one has tried to win, another one has has contested against me, but they have bitten the dust. They've been shown to be the loser. To eat someone's dust is to to suffer a humiliating defeat against them. This is Satan's future. His plans will be repeatedly frustrated. His losses will be on repeat. In Genesis 3.14, God has written the final score. Satan will one day lose. And that's the ramp that gets us to verse 15, where we get the details of what this defeat will be like. God says to the snake, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That there is the... The, the Proto-Euangelion, the first prophecy pointing towards a rescuer. Firstly, there's going to be hostility between mankind and, and Satan. For the true offspring of Adam and Eve, there would be a hatred of sin, a, a sorrow at sin's effects upon us, and, and an increasing misery when we find ourselves entangled in sin's tentacles. It's a kindness of God 
when we notice the hostility between us and Satan. It's God's grace to us when we find ourselves miserable at sin. When you think about your own sin, the sin that is separated from you from God, the sin that you hope no one else finds about, the, the stuff that resides deep in your heart that you hope that nobody, not even the closest person to you, will ever find out about you, and it makes you sad, and you, you become miserable at it, thank the Lord and praise Him that He has turned your stomach at Satan's schemes. That's the Holy Spirit prompting you to turn back to Jesus, to repent of your sin, and live a life of righteousness and holiness. But then the curse gets a bit more specific. Speaking not just of the general hostility between mankind and evil, it then speaks of one particular human and Satan himself. God is making a threat to the snake that an individual will come and will fight the snake and will win. The snake will strike his heel, but this individual will crush the snake's head and will have the final victory. And this points us right at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Satan struck Jesus. Jesus would be betrayed by his closest companions, abandoned by most of his friends, handed over by his own people to a foreign power to be whipped and flogged and beaten and spat upon and humiliated and stripped of all dignity and humanity. He would have nails pounded through his wrists and his ankles, and he would slowly asphyxiate until his body perished in public shame and scorn. And yet the cross, the same place where, the, where Satan would strike him, would become also the place where Jesus would have undeniable victory over Satan. Yes, Jesus' body died. But, his, but, his, but he did not remain in the grave. Jesus rose again, showing that death had no power over him. Satan tried to kill Jesus, but Jesus did not stay dead. Satan's supposed victory over Jesus became inverted, and it became his own defeat. At the cross, Jesus suffered unto death, but at the tomb, Jesus killed death. And in doing so, he cleared the path so that absolutely anyone who trusted in him and who received his mercy and love and salvation and his grace would be guaranteed to rise again just like Jesus. Death would no longer have, a fi have the final word. Sin was undone. And although death would remain inevitable on this side of, et of eternity, its power, death's power was finished. Because of sin, mankind needs a saviour, which is what Genesis 3.15 promises. And what we celebrate at Christmas time is, that the, is the arrival of this saviour, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that Genesis 3.15 was talking about. Jesus is the snake crusher. This child, this baby born into a manger. He's actually God. He came to fight the devil. Knowing full well that, as he, that in crushing the head of the snake, he would be struck down himself. And if you go and you look at the birth narratives, Matthew and Luke, and you, you see the stories that we're used to of the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and Herod and Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all that, 
you get these hints all the way through that, that this is actually the Messiah who came. This is the one who came. And, and one of the hints that I want to point us to this morning in Luke 2 is from one of the more obscure parts of Jesus' life as a baby. It's the story in Luke 2 where, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. Now, according to Jewish custom, uh, Jesus would have been around six weeks old at this point. Uh, circumcised after eight days, then 40 days after that, they were to bring the baby uh, to the temple to, be, to present him to the Lord. And as Mary and Joseph enter the temple in Jerusalem, they come across this old man named Simeon. Reading from Luke chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So God had revealed to Simeon that his eyes would see the Messiah. He would see the one who would come and comfort God's people, the consolation of Israel. He would see this comfort come in the one who was going to come and do, do, do battle with Satan and win. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Don't miss what he said there. His eyes had seen the Lord's salvation. The six-week-old baby Jesus was a sight for Simeon's sore old eyes. He had longed to see, he had longed to see the one, to, be, to behold the one who would save mankind from the very sin that precipitated Genesis 3.15. And I want to pause for a moment just on that note and just reflect upon how seriously sweet the kindness of God is. It had been revealed to the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would, he would see the Lord's salvation. And here, he doesn't just get to see the Lord's salvation, he gets to nurse him in his arms. That's special. That's, that's wonderful. That God pays attention to these little details. At the prayer meeting on Thursday morning, we, we sat back and just reflected on God's answer to prayers. It's, it's the little things, the small things here and there. And we were just filled with delight as we reflected upon this one's been answered and this one's been answered and this one's been answered. And it was just wonderful. i tell you what, if you ever get a chance to pray with Margaret or Wilma or Ruth and Noel, gosh, pray with them. These, these wise saints who know how to celebrate God's grace. My word. If you want to come to prayer on Thursday mornings, you are most welcome. Our needs and desires, however small, they are not, they are not ignored or, or forgotten or, or missed by God. He sees them all. Like the carol we sang last week, He knows our need to our weakness. He is no stranger at all. But that's not actually why I wanted to look at Simeon. It's actually the next few verses that bring this home. It says in verse 33, 
His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him by Simeon. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed. That means this child has a special role to play. He's, he's the one who's going to fight the devil. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. He will be opposed. Then verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. If we th- want to think about how much it costs Jesus to be struck by Satan. I don't think there's a more serious or solemn vantage point than through the eyes of his own mother. Satan would assault Jesus so severely that it wasn't just Jesus who would be hurt. A sword would go right through Mary's soul as well. Think about what that would have been like for Mary to watch her son die. And I want to be sensitive here. I know some of you here have lost children. And I, I don't know what that would have been like. I don't have a category for it. My, my heart goes to you. That, that must have been so incredibly painful. And I hesitate to guess, but maybe a sword piercing your soul is an appropriate description of what that's like. See, sometimes we look at the cross with sterilized eyes that fail to see the gruesome pain that sin caused Jesus. We fail to see the grotesque shape of sin as it came down upon Jesus' shoulders. Look at it through Mary's eyes for a moment and, and see the sword go through her soul. And then let that shed light on a passage like John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That God gave his son. Renya's not here today, but if you ever get a chance to talk about Renya about this, talk to Renya about this, he will say this. You can't understand Genesis 3.16 without first, like John John 3.16 without first understanding Genesis 3.15. But why does this matter? Why should we care that Jesus is a snake crusher? What difference does it make to today, this afternoon or this week? Why does this change anything for us? Well, it matters because Jesus isn't the only one who has victory over Satan. He's not the only snake crusher. Jesus' defeat of Satan is actually the, the prelude of our victory over Satan. Here's the thing. Every single problem that you and I have ever encountered in this life can be traced back to that moment in the garden. So have you have you experienced heartache before? Like we all have? Well, that heartache had had a reason. There was something that, that caused that heartache. And whatever caused that heartache, that thing itself had a cause as well. And we can go back and we can trace it back all the way back to the garden. If you've experienced loss, that loss began with Satan in the garden. If you feel pain and sorrow, your pain and your sorrow had their start with Satan in the garden. He is the adversary of God and his people. He is the accuser, the destroyer, the tempter, the evil one, and the prince of this world. To quote J.I. Packer, Satan is one of unimaginable meanness, malice, 
fury and cruelty directed against God, against God's truth, and against those to whom God has extended his saving love. All of our pain and all of our sorrow and all of our heartache and all of our loss and frustration and our misery began in the garden and we experience it because we are under the curse of sin. The whole world is under the curse of sin, under that bondage. It cries out and yearns to be freed from it. And that bondage came about from the great deceiver and the great liar who wants nothing more than to separate God's people from him. And Jesus' victory over Satan is the overture for our victory over Satan. There will come a day where Satan and sin and death will no longer have any kind of say over us. A day where pain and frustration and misery and sadness and despair will be no more and we will enjoy the same kind of harmony and relationship with God that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 16. He finishes with these words, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus shares his victory over Satan, over death with us. He has dealt a death blow to Satan. And in the same way that a, that a hunter might stand over its prey, over its prey and put his foot up on the prey, Jesus is inviting us to, to put our feet on Satan. He's inviting us to put the accuser, the adversary, the murderer, the destroyer, and the tempter under our feet. Satan's intentions, which are for our destruction, will ultimately be thwarted and he will lose. The invitation is to, is to recognize, actually, that there's going to come a day where our pain will be no more, our sorrow will be no more, our misery will be no more, our sin and death will no longer have the final say. We will one day stand in victory with Jesus over evil. Come and put your foot on that. As we finish, there are three things that I want us to take away from this. Three points of application. The first one is this. Anyone can get in on this. This is absolutely available to everyone. You don't have to have a perfect track record because none of us do. If you're in the habit of thinking that the other people here at church, they're much better Christians than you are and you're the worst sinner in the room, just be assured that everybody thinks that way. You don't have to have an impressive resume. In fact, you shouldn't have an impressive resume. If you put any faith in that, any trust in that, that's going to lead to your demise, tear that sucker up. The only thing that we bring to the table of salvation is our sin which put Jesus on the cross. Rely instead on his unmerited favor towards us, his unbelievable grace towards us. That we don't have to be 10% better than what we are to come to him. Like if there's a, a prayer that you're waiting for an answer from and you think, I, I, I just don't think I can talk to God about this. I just got to wait until I'm just a little bit better before I can approach God. Know that we approach God not by our own works, but by the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. That our sin has been paid for and dealt with on the cross. Boldly we can approach his throne. So anyone can get in on this. Point number two, this changes everything. And I do mean everything. Christians are not only saved by Jesus, they also submit to his rule and authority over their lives. 
if you like the idea of being saved by Jesus, of being saved from your sins, but you still want to be in charge, you're going to find Jesus very frustrating. You're going to find it very hard to read God's word because it's full of God's lordship. He is the one in charge. He is the king. And we submit to him. He's the one in charge. He's the one we submit to. When we read God's word and it says something about our lives that we don't like and it becomes between us and God's word, guess what? It's God's word that wins. We submit to God's law, God's rule. But if you do submit to him, you will discover that in him is life. Life everlasting. Life to the full. Better than anything that you could conjure up on your own. That's not at all to say that life will suddenly become easy. In fact, from experience, we know it's probably going to be the opposite. It does mean, however, that he will be with us always, and he will be the source of our life, not our circumstances. Third thing is that this makes our future spectacular. Knowing that Jesus has won and Satan will lose guarantees an awesome future and gives us a new meaning to today. I mean, just imagine that knowing our pain and frustration and sadness and misery has a use-by date and will one day come untrue. And we will stand with Jesus in victory over the one who caused it all. That's exactly what it's like for every single Christian. Knowing full well that this life is not all that there is, but there's going to come another life where we will step into the new heavens and new earth. We will see Jesus face to face. We will see our salvation face to face. And all the sad things of this world will come untrue. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 say it better than I ever could. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on, the, put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal put, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.